Today's program has been brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit heritagefoodsusa.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Last week on Chef's Story, Dorothy Hamilton interviewed Chef Daniel Patterson about his experiences writing a book and working as a chef in his own restaurant. This week, we'll hear the continuation of this exciting interview. What was your concept when you were opening Qua? And, and uh, you know, it, it's definitely, where is your philosophy? And if you want someone to walk out of here, what is their, what do you want them to remember about their experience here uh, as a diner? So to talk about Kwa, I'm going to have to go back a little bit. Okay. And uh, I have to talk about more people. Is that okay? That's good. Okay. I mean, part of, part of the focus on people, like, food is about people. It's how we understand each other. It's how we understand the world around us. It's, it's, um, it's one of the most central components of life. And so, um, and it's very powerful. And, uh, and it's a way to communicate with other people when you don't necessarily have language. And so that's what it was for me. I discovered that I could cook in a way that would communicate something positive in a way that I couldn't always as a person. And um, Like your grandmother. Yeah. Yeah, very much. And uh, I reached this point in 2005 where I'd, I'd had a couple of restaurants and, and, uh, and then I tried working for something else and kind of nothing had worked out and I'd been here 16 years and... Um, and uh, and I didn't know what I was going to do. And I tried to get a job, and I couldn't. And, um, and, and that summer, that spring into summer, um, my wife's mother, who is from here, my wife is, is Californian, four generations on both sides. Um, interestingly, her, her grandparents founded a very famous um, Pasadena institution called Pine Burger. And uh, the family sold it years ago, but... Uh, but that's you know what her background was, and she grew up in it, or at least her, her father did. Um, and um, you know her mother was dying of cancer, and she we spent a lot of time visiting with her. And she lived up in the in the Sierra foothills in, in, in a little town called Greenville. And she was an archaeologist, and her job was that um, she she knew the the native tribes very well, who'd lived here for thousands of years, and. There, there are certain laws if you're going to build somewhere that you need someone to check and make sure there wasn't a sacred burial ground or whatever and so um, she would do that and so while we were there we would go for walks and she'd show me um, plants and, and, and edible things that I'd never really that I never knew anything about and tell me not just well you can eat this and this is how you can eat this and this is how they've been eaten historically and how they've been used and this is medicinal and, and my wife knew a lot about it as well and it was I'd always been interested in wild foods but this was this look, it, it just started me thinking a little bit about about the people who've lived here in California for, for thousands of years before us, and and um, because you know at the end of the day, you know, a cook is is one speck on a long continuum, 
and it just kind of shone this light on the back end of the continuum. I'm like, wow, there's so much that I don't know. And so I started studying a lot of that, and and uh, you know, eventually her, her mom passed, and when when she did, I drove up, and, and, and my wife was already there, or my fiance at the time, and and uh, it was this unbelievable experience. I never, um, I'd never experienced that kind of grief before, and I didn't know what to do, and so mm. I started cooking, and so. Um, and her sister was there, her mother's best friend, her mother's partner, and and so everyone was hungry. So I went to the store and I got some food. And for four days, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, I cooked for them. I cooked for um, anyone who came by the house. And uh, and and it was this this in, in, incredible experience. And I think if you were to ask my wife, she'd probably still tell you today that this was like the best thing I'd ever done for her. But everyone was just beside themselves unable to feed themselves, you know, to the point at which, like, um, uh, they, they, were, they were totally dislocated from this very basic thing. And so I, I had this thing that I could do. I could cook for them. And, and while I was doing it, that's where I started thinking about Kwan. I thought about kind of what it means to cook for someone. And that, that very basic thing. I think it's easy to get removed from that in a restaurant, which has a lot in common with a factory. You have to produce lots of things. You have to produce them consistently. And sometimes you can lose the thread of that, that one-on-one, like we're sitting here looking at each other and engaging with each other from two feet away and you're doing something for someone. Sometimes you can lose that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so that was, that was what I wanted for Kwa. I wanted something very tiny and controllable because I'm a total control freak and I'm the first person to say that. I wanted to have everything perfect. Well, of course, perfect isn't going to happen, but at the very least, I wanted that sense of warmth as if people were coming to my house. And it's, we found a place that was um, very humble. Um, it, I, I like the bones of it. It's kind. Of, it, we turn it into a good restaurant, but it's a terrible neighborhood. We were right next to a strip club. I think we had, uh, we had, we, we had, we had, for three years, like every review that was ever written about the restaurant mentioned strip club. I'm like, come on, there's more to restaurant than that. But, but, you know, I acknowledge that it was a terrible location, but it was the one we could afford. Mm-hmm. And, and we opened with no money, and, um, uh, and, and the whole thing was, we didn't do really any publicity about it, it was just like, we're open, come in, and the whole focus was, um, we're here for the people that walk in the door every day. That's it. And from the very, very beginning, the experience that I wanted to have was this experience of someone is working really hard to make something beautiful. It opened with a tasting menu? Yes, yeah, so we had a four-course menu and a tasting menu, and we opened. The four-course had three choices in each course, and I ditched it after a couple months because, you know, I thought, I thought a lot of things. I had a couple of restaurants that didn't work out. I thought I want to connect to um, the local people. I want to create this, this environment where people want to come, so I wanted to be really comfortable. So we did a lot of things that were very unusual. We, we mixed up um, kind of... Uh, restaurants are a lot about symbolism. So we mixed up fine dining or haute cuisine symbolism and, and very rustic symbolism. So we were using, like, handmade pottery. And we had these... We had, throw, like, little shaggy throw pillows everywhere. And so it was this mixture of, like, neighborhood place, but, like, ambitious haute cuisine food that was totally confusing to people. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think that... You know, I couldn't have tried to make the place more confusing. I couldn't have made, tried, made the place more confusing if I tried. And I wasn't trying to. I was trying to create something that was honest and that reflected a sense of comfort 
and then a sense of excitement at the same time. So discovery and familiarity. And, and um, you know, it took a while to catch on. We were not busy in the beginning. Um, a lot For how of, long? Oh, man, like the first couple of years, really. We got busy in 2008 when we were in the New York Times. And then we had... And that's when the, implode, the financial implosion was, 2008. Did that... But if you we were in the did, New York Times, you, you we did really, of, yeah, it was incredible. It was like we did well, and then we got our second Michelin star. And that was the other thing. Like, I never thought, Michelin didn't even exist in 2005 here. Mm-hmm. The first guide came out in 2006. Mm-hmm. And we opened in that spring, and, and we were mentioned, and then the next year we had one star, and the next year we had two stars. Well, I never thought I was going to open a two Michelin star restaurant. Had you ever eaten in one by that time? And by 2008, Yes. But 2006? Yeah, I, I ate at Arpege the year they got three stars in 1997. Funny story, um, it's when uh, Claude Bosi and Pascal Barbeau were in the kitchen, and, uh, and they, they both became really good friends. And so, like, you know, I was there when I was, like, a puppy. You know? <laughs> I was, like, 25, 26 years old. Blew me away. Um, the talk about sourcing. Yeah. Boy. Yeah. That's the cathedral for France, anyway. I mean, and... and and beyond sourcing, he has a touch, you know? And what it's does just, that mean? What does it mean? He has a touch. It means it's something that it's like, um, and again, kind of going back to like a woodworker or someone who's good with their hands, who has a good intuition. Mm-hmm. He has an amazing ability to connect, like to intuitively know when to turn something, when to turn a heat up, when to turn it down. This kind of instinct that you can't really teach. And you can learn how to take your own innate ability and make it better, but you can't teach instinct like that. It's like he's, he's just kind of magic, you know? And he, he draws flavor and texture out of things that is extraordinary. And there's not many people in the world that can really do that. And, you know, and I think that's a component of, of cooking, like, like at a very high level, Mm-hmm. That really is unteachable. Mm-hmm. That that instinct of when to leave something off, when to, when it needs one more thing, mm-hmm. when to pull back, when mm-hmm. to stop a cooking process, mm-hmm. and it starts with the ingredients themselves, what to use and what not to use. Mm-hmm. And that kind of that intuition around cooking is like everything. So anyway, you know, now when I feel like if you were to say what what should someone expect when they walk in the door at quarter day, you know, we've. We've remodeled like four times. The kitchen's been completely updated, and we've gotten better and better with our systems and our consistency. And I would say, um, I would hope that you'd find um, really genuine hospitality and um, food that tasted really good, like surprisingly good, that was presented in a kind of unassuming way that aggregated over the course of the meal into something, an experience that was kind of Special. That's what I would hope that people would experience. But for sure what they would experience, they would always know what they were eating. You know, I read the interview you did with Gabrielle Hamilton, mm-hmm. and uh, you, you were fighting over the tasting menu. Like, she oh, said yeah. she hated it, yeah, you know, yeah. because of the length. And, and, and you just said something that I think is the key. Um, because I, I don't like 14... Courses, you know, I'm, I'm hung- I like to go to a restaurant hungry, and I w- wind up eating a lot of bread. And by the 14th course, I'm gone. You know, <laughs> it's not, I don't appreciate it as much as the beginning. But you just gave me a key I never heard before, and it's aggregating the experience. And I notice your tasting menus are eight 
you know, they're not, it could be four or five, but they're, n they're not 15. And, and, um, and, and it's, it's the buildup, isn't it? It's the, of the, um, the interaction bet between each of those courses. Yeah, I mean, what I said to Gabrielle was that it's like saying, well, there's plenty of sh good short stories in the world, why would you need a novel? Right. But you can express things in that form that you can't express in a shorter form. Mm. So it's totally different. Mm. But what I think people get hung up on is bad tasting menus. And no one likes bad tasting. So I've, I, and trust me, I've had plenty of them where three courses in, you feel like you're in a prison sentence. You're like, holy <laughs> shit. The food sucks. I hate this place. And I have two more hours in front of me. And then like the pacing is terrible. And then you just like want to either kill yourself or someone else by the time you leave. And then it's expensive on top of everything. So I think that there's sometimes liberties taken with the form. But I think that's what, what I think even more than that is I've had a lot of really crappy meals that have been casual meals, but the damage is much less. Yes. You're out in a short amount of time and you didn't spend as much money. <laughs> That's true. So that the damage of a bad tasting menu meal is like really, really considerable. And a lot of people don't take it seriously. Like, I don't want to say a lot. I want to say some people don't take their obligation seriously to their customer. They don't think about their customer. They think about themselves. They think about, I'm creating this big thing. But you know, every day what we think about is like, we actually scaled our menu back. After the, we did the book, you know, this big long thing about our tasting menu and our format. And then the second the book was done, I was like, huh, I think we need to change it now. <laughs> but, but I went back and I'm like, what? I feel like there's something better. There's another. And so I actually talked to Pascal from Astrance about, he does eight courses. And we talked about how he puts his menu together. And, and we, I listened to feedback that people have had uh, after five vegetable dishes in a row, which we would do. We would, like, 11 courses, it's like maybe one piece of meat, you know, and... Uh, we just kind of would lose people sometimes. The menu would be too long. It would, you know, there are certain things about it. They're like, okay, well, let's take this and let's see if we can do what we do and the way that we do it. So it took seven years to evolve our language, you know. We have, I think we have a culinary language here that's, that's our own, that's mm -hmm. distinctive. Mm -hmm. well, we don't have to lose that, mm -hmm. but we can put it into a form that's a little bit more... Um, accessible for people and so that's what we did and so we shorten it up and we get people out in two two and a half hours mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. if people want to stay they can stay but like we are very very focused on people's comfort mm -hmm. and if you let their experience drag mm -hmm. and if you give them too many dishes that they're they don't understand or that are perplexing if you don't focus on them and their enjoyment mm -hmm. Then, then it's going to be a terrible experience. And so I think it's really about the, the restaurants having a heightened sense of obligation to their customers and a, and a heightened sense of, of caring mm. and to make sure that, you know, we're not going to reach everyone. Mm -hmm. You know, there's um, uh, a French chef had this great uh, quote, it was maybe 10, 15 years ago, he said, she's, uh, it was a woman, she said, uh, it's not an all things for all people cuisine. <laughs> which I thought, you know, yes. it's just a really great... Same. Ours is not an all-things-for-all-people cuisine. No. We cook in a certain way, and if what you want is, is traditional luxury, that's what's not what we do. And if you want, you know, it's just a big steak, then that's not what we do either. I think what we try and do is be very honest about what we provide, you know, what we're good at, and then to, to execute what we promise. Okay, we're going to take a quick break here. We'll be right back.
You are listening to Andy's Biscuits by Pamela Royal on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. following is an actor reading an actual customer email from Heritage Foods USA. My family and I enjoyed the Heritage turkey. It was far superior to the regular mass-produced turkeys in terms of flavor and texture. Absolutely delicious and worth the difference in price. We will never go back to the regular turkeys. It made our holidays more enjoyable. Thank you, Heritage Foods USA. Heritage Foods USA hopes you had a great holiday season. For more specials on pork, beef, and other meats, visit www.heritagefoodsusa.com. Welcome back. We're, you're listening to Chef Story, and I'm Dorothy Can Hamilton, and today my guest is Daniel Patterson, and we're sitting at Qua in San Francisco. Well, let's get right back into it. You said something in the last segment um, about being a control freak, and, uh, or... Oh, yeah, I don't think that's any big news. No. <laughs> But where I find it, I found it fascinating that you've opened two restaurants, three actually. I think Alta's opening soon. I don't know if it actually opened yet. No, within, within a month. Within, within a, month. a month, okay. But you have Plum, Plum Bar, and a Haven in Oakland, and now Alta. And they've come on board pretty quickly, you know. Um, it, yeah. And uh, so what's going on there? What do you? What do you? Yeah, the accidental restaurant group. <laughs> is it the accidental? I mean, because you don't, I don't strike know, I me as a restaurant group. You know, you, you strike me as a. Uh, but we're working on that. Yeah. So, um, it it did happen, and we kind of backed into it, and then um, the 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 reason that I've been able to to open other restaurants, and not I, but we, um, is uh, my business partner Ron Boyd, who is uh, an extraordinarily talented. Chef, an extraordinarily talented, per- one of the most competent people and creative people I've ever met in my life. And he was my chef de cuisine, Elizabeth Daniel, 2001, 2003. And then, you know, he went his way and I went my way. And when we were kind of on, uh, just about before we opened Plum, uh, he was looking and we were talking a lot. And, and I, I said, well, you know, I'd love it if you come to help run the restaurants. And so he took a job as a director of operation. He's, he's become my partner. And um, my, the, it, without him, um, it wouldn't be happening. And I think that one of the things that has been really interesting about this process, which I, I never wanted this, you know, but it turns out that when you have kids, you know, a, a high-end restaurant is not like how you're going to send them to college. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's um, a very honest statement. <laughs> um, and so then you're like, okay, I'm going to open a restaurant. And then you realize, okay... You know, that wasn't so easy. And then you go one to two and two to three and three to four. So we have put a tremendous amount of effort organizationally. We've tried a lot of different things. A lot of them haven't worked. We've wasted money. We've, we've hired people and then, you know, it wasn't the right position. And what we've come to, what we've come to understand is a couple of things. One is that communication is 98% of all problems. Mm-hmm. And that might be a low estimate. Mm-hmm. The thing that we've worked hardest on is how do we communicate with each other and how do we communicate with the world? How do we communicate with the people coming in our restaurant? 
and I would say this is a in process mm-hmm. that this is a ours is a group run by two back of the house people and so um, our internal marketing our internal messaging uh, has been terrible for years um, we haven't really taken a we haven't taken the time to put the energy into the kind of um, fuzzy blanket around the solid infrastructure. You know, all we've worked on is the engine, and we haven't really, you know, given as much great emphasis to everything else. And now we're like, but it all matters. And, you know, honestly, the food has never been the hard part for us. And now we're realizing our entire, entire focus is on the front of the house and on service and on how we can support our team and our team in all of the restaurants. How many employees right now? Uh, we're around 100. For, okay. So it's, they're all pretty small restaurants. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we've, you know, we've opened four successful restaurants in a row. I mean, I think our track record is pretty good, but I don't think we've done it as well as we could have. Well, that's your mantra, isn't it? I mean, no, <laughs> like I, I think... You always go back and... Yeah, but I think, I think really, there's a lot of things that we've done along the way that we've learned from, like, wow, we could do that again. Right. You know, right. in terms of uh, how we set up a staff, how we set up, you know, certain kinds of checks and balances within the restaurant. So it's been, it, it's been kind of, kind of, as much as it's been frustrating, it's been kind of wonderful, too. Because what we've developed is this team of really, really great people. How much does the team need to see you, feel you in the kitchen? Do you have to go to Haven? Do you have to go to Plum Bar? No, Ron handles that. Um, my role, once a place gets open, is more of a eyes, ears, and to be support and, and almost a cheerleader. Like, I'll take people into these places. I'll, um, I try and, and provide support to the chefs and encouragement and as much as I can um, the the fact is that there are not enough hours in the day for as much as I want to do and I don't I, I never feel like I do enough with them um, you know I think w- what my job is and and um, and Ron's is is that we should be able to be the vision and so uh, Kim Alter our chef at Haven who did an amazing job for two years when we had an opening at Plum we moved her to Plum we talked to her about it but it's very strongly recommended it because I knew that she her food would just take off in a smaller environment and it has it is just amazing and so now um, it's a question of like how do we support now that they're there how do we um, we've got a bar that's doing great you know we took the restaurant and I just kind of I looked at how she cooked which is very ambitious and very um, very intense very intense and it's hard to get staff right now. It's hard to get trained staff. And I said, well, let's go down to five days. Let's do what we do at Qua. I want you to go five. down to five days, and you choose the five days. She chose the same days as at Qua, Sunday, Monday off. And I said, two times? She will not take a vacation. It drives me crazy. So I'm like, okay, we're going to close the restaurant twice a year. And you're going to take a vacation. And your whole staff is going to take a vacation. And, when, and, it, and it's worked really well for us. So those kinds of decisions where I think let's do something that they might not even ask for they're but they're very box thinking aren't they close the restaurant because she won't take a vacation I don't I don't know any <laughs> other you know well I but I but I recognize a lot of myself in her mm-hmm. and and that's why we close here and 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 not just because of that it allows a breathing room for this this you know uh, this this 
uh, apparatus that gets a lot of pressure put on it. Gives mm-hmm. twice a year the mm-hmm. energy, and then you know you you you've got one staff. They're not taking their their vacations all over the year. It's like right. oh, you get two weeks a year, January and July. Mm-hmm. And that's not to say if there was a day where you need to go to a wedding or whatever right. that we couldn't um, arrange for it because we do. But you know, by and large. You work with your team, and so it's really geared towards a kind of consistency Smart. that's really, really important. But you you lose money in the process. I mean, you just yeah. do, and so you you cut your losses a little bit by trimming your staff a little bit. But at the end of the day, it's not, you know, it's it's not like a decision that's, that's based on the best. I mean, it, it makes sense in business only if what you really want is a great restaurant, and and that's what we decided there that we were going to go in towards a more gastronomic like ambitiously gastronomic restaurant. And so all I want to do is give her the room to grow in the way that I knew she can grow. So my job is a lot to stay out of the way, you know, to not impede people from doing their best work. And it sounds, it sounds uh, negative or almost like non-proactive, but I think the hardest thing to do, if you're an owner or a manager, the hardest thing to do is to not impede people, to, to give them the the space where they can do their best work. And for me, like, if, when I talk to the cooks who come out of my kitchen and they say, uh, the, 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 the point, of, the best work that I did was, was when I was there, I, that, that's really special, you know? And, and then so many, so many people have come out of our kitchen now and gone on to open their own restaurants and they've done great. And that's really, really gratifying. So that says to me that, you know, something good. Has so come out of there. For the man who doesn't have enough time in the day, why did you do the book? <laughs> because we're not busy enough, and I want to promote the restaurant. You want to put some fluff around it? Uh, you're not busy enough in clock? No. Weekends we're busy. But we're not we're not packed every day. I find that amazing. Really amazing. Is that uh, trust me, I, I do okay. too. Okay, <laughs> alright. So oh I you know, I love your honesty. You know, I, I just, I, I love your honesty. Yeah, it gets me in all kind of trouble. Yeah, no, but it's so helpful because there's so many people out there doing, you know, honest cuisine their way. And, and to understand, you're one of the uh, really most uh, respected and well-known chefs in America. And in a city like San Francisco that's so food-oriented and has a lot of businesses here. Um, so when so, you did the book... Then now you can't do things by halves. That book That's is right. extraordinary. It's extraordinary, and you you didn't even just like pick the recipes and put it there. You had to go with stories and the narrative, and I mean that even put more pressure or time on you. Why did you choose? Because of the emotional connection? No, no. I mean, yeah. I just I don't do anything halfway. I mean that's and if you're going to represent something, if you're going to represent a, a, a restaurant, and this is. I mean, I love this restaurant. Mm. It's really, really important to me. Mm. And so I wanted to do something that expressed that. And um, when the, the way the book started was the, the head of Fiden called me, or wrote me an email in 2009, and she'd seen a, an article I wrote in the Financial Times. She said, well, why don't we do a book together? I was like, hell no. Yeah. You know, I didn't know what to say, and we were still in the process of discovering. It really did take seven years of working really, really hard and, and trying a lot of things and failing a lot to develop a language that I felt was ours. 
And that maybe is more important to me than it is to other people, but for me that is so, so important because if the language wasn't ours, then it's not honest. Mm-hmm. And so I was kind of coming out of this time and, and I finally had this idea and I said, because we've been talking for the, you know, through the years and we're you know, uh, very f- friendly and we'd see each other here and there. Um, her name is uh, Amelia uh, Trying, just amazing, amazing person. And she said, you know, I told her my idea and she said, great. And she said, don't do a book that's been done before. Do something that hasn't been done before. And I'm definitely the person to tell that to. Yeah. So, so, I, so I thought about it and I said, okay, well, I'm going to do, and it just kind of evolved that, um, you know, I'm going to do, um, you know, a picture and then um, a recipe in, uh, or a, like a, an essay and a recipe. But the recipe is going to be written long form, like I'm talking to a cook. And so that was a basis for the book. And I'd been working with a, an incredibly talented uh, photographer here named Marin Crusoe. Those pictures, those photos are just extraordinary. In, incredible, you know. And, uh, and, and we worked hard together. It was a great collaboration. And, and we started with these light table pictures, which were very kind of artistic and not exactly the way we do it at the restaurant. But, you know, a, a picture is already a lie a little bit. You know, mm-hmm. it's already one time removed. You've taken something three-dimensional and made it two-dimensional. This mm-hmm. idea, like, I want the most realistic pictures. Well, you know, that's fine. But you, you can also look at it the other way, that it, you are changing form. So you might as well, as long as you're changing form, rethink the expression of that and maybe express it in a way that says something that's truer to what you want to say. Because sometimes when you, when you just represent something into a different form, you lose the energy. You lose something about it. Mm-hmm. And, and, but then you know, a friend said, well, your food doesn't really look like the, the, that at the restaurant. And I said, oh, yeah, that's true. So we did one menu, beginning to end. So if you came on September 14, 2012, uh, that was the menu you had. So about 40 people in the world, that, you know, that was their menu. And we shot it just like you were sitting it in our dining room um, at our table with our pottery in exactly the way we played it. So we kind of, I kind of feel like we got both things. And then um, I took a photographer all of, all of the places that I go, whether it's foraging or my favorite farms. And the essays, I mean, there's 63 individual essays. It's, you know, it's not nothing. And, uh, <laughs> I'll say. and I wrote the book pretty fast and it was, you know... Um, what does pretty fast mean? Six months. That is very fast. With 63 essays? Yeah, it was 75,000 words. And, oh. uh, um, yeah, and that New Yorker artist kind of made fun of me for how much I wrote on the plane to... Um, uh, to um, 15,000 words, um, right? Yeah, what is it? Oh, um, you went Louis Cannes. It's um, yeah, 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 yeah. A, a Monte Carlo. Monte Carlo, yeah. Right. So I was going there for an event. And, uh, and I was bummed that she never called me and she just made it sound like it was kind of a tall tale but um, I just I had I'd like I had to write it right. you know and I had my, my I had a due date like the book was going to slip a year if I didn't hit it so I had to throw 50,000 words in their hands and I mean it got backwards it was like I wrote 10,000 words in 15 hours and it got reversed but the point is it was an extraordinary amount of work that I did on the plane over there mm-hmm. and then I got there into my hotel in Monte Carlo and I hit send and then I cooked it Ducasse's uh, 25th anniversary for Louis Cannes. And so, um, you know, it was very much like I would let it lapse and then it, I would just like have to squeeze out these intense bursts. Um, but, uh, but then once I sent it and, you know, I was like, it wasn't done. 
And then by the time I turned in the book proper, it was 65,000 words. And then by the time I was done, it was 75, because each time I would keep rewriting it, and I'd say, ah, I missed this, and I should have that. And so by the time we had to actually get the design done, it was, it was a lot of pictures and a lot of words. You're, and you're, it, you're such an elegant writer. When did that happen? Was it the year you were at Duke? I mean, that's another, that's a skill like cooking. I mean, that's not something that just happened. So that, that's, and that's the other half of the story is that I've, I've been very fortunate in that um, I didn't write between when I was like 20 and 35. I just gave it up completely because I thought I couldn't be great at it, which is what I do with things. Like I stopped playing, like I play piano. And I stopped playing because I was playing with guys who, would, uh, who were basically professional. And I was like, I'm never going to be as good as they are, so I just stopped entirely. Um, <laughs> I know it sounds totally crazy, but, uh, but yep, that's me. So, uh, um, but, but, but anyway, you, it, it, I, I, was, your... I was in between restaurants in 2005. I wrote an essay. I sent it to a friend, and she said, ah, you know, who worked at the New York Times, and said, we should send it to this other person. And I did, and they published it, and... And then they liked it, and then I just started doing more things. Uh, but I always wanted to be a writer, so, so for so me... So were you writing when you were a teenager? Yeah, okay. but not well. No. I mean... So who helped in you? Bits and pe- it just happened. I, I have practice, no... Ex- practice, practice, practice. No, I didn't practice. I didn't practice for 15 years. So the first magazine story I ever wrote was from New York Times Magazine when I was 35, and I literally had not written anything in 15 years. I'd written a prep list. You know, uh, I probably vetted a, a, I don't know, press release or a menu, but I literally had not written anything, anything in 15 years. I think one of the most important things in writing is having a point of view. Yeah. You know? But practice, too. Yeah, you have and, to and have hard, the words to be able to communicate that. I'm just trying to, your story is so fascinating. It's maybe that link with people that, you know, where did those... You know, even some of the, the analogies you made today were, were just so apt that um, the communication with your staff is words. So we're, you, you know, that's a honing skill to get. So my people out. skills yeah. are um, like an artificial construct. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think um, warmth, generosity... You know, I, I have all those things, but um, I wasn't very well socialized, and so I had to learn that, you know, that, that those normal sort of buffers that people put on, on the outside so that, you know, you're just not bumping hard edges all the time. And, uh, and I still fail, you know, from time to time on that. Um, but I think... Um, Is it failure? I bet, I bet you hate cocktail parties or anything like that. My God. Yes, right. I, I mean, I don't even want to bring that up. But it's, it's more that you're, 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 you're serious. I mean, you, you want to talk to somebody, not chit-chat. So there's a, there's a great book. This woman, Susan Cain, wrote uh, about introverts. And she talked... I mean, there's a little test in the beginning. You answer 20 questions. I came up uh, 18 of them. You know, I'm very, very introverted. I mean, it's just my nature is that I like to be by myself. And the irony is I got into a job where I could be isolated and it turned into this thing where I'm constantly talking to people. It is the craziest <laughs> thing. So I'm like constantly playing catch up now. Like I've gotten good at giving talks. I've gotten good at presenting ideas in a, in a way that there's shape and structure, there's humor, there's, um, there's human humanness. I think humanness is like a... 
a very underrated thing in, in anything we do now. Um, but, but, you know, and then the day-to-day thing, when I go to a cocktail party, by the time I leave, like, my conversation with myself on the way home is like, wow, I just sounded like a total idiot. I can't believe I said that. And, and I'm like, oh, my God, when I was talking to that person and I went off on that tangent, that was... T- and what do, peop- what do other people think? Probably nothing. Probably, the, you know, I think for most people, they don't agonize over things so much. But that's just, that's my nature. So for me, um, writing is very much, again, a way to control communication and polish it so it's as much as possible it expresses something true and honest. Because a lot of the ways that I, that, that I communicate with people, I'm not able to do that. Or I, 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 I get steered off course and what actually gets, gets expressed. And they say, well, I thought you said this. I'm like, oh my God, how did that happen? And that was, like, that was 180 degrees from what I meant to say. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think that, I, I, I think it's a little unreasonable to expect, I mean, I think I cook at a pretty high level. I think I write at a pretty high level. And to be a people person at, at that same high level, I think it's a little unreasonable, but that's it. And so that's my job too. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to do my best and I'm going to learn from everyone. I mean, now after we've talked, I'm going to think about our interaction and think about all of the things that, that you did that I really liked about how you communicate and your directness and, and, and this kind of nice warmth. And, and I'm like, that was great. And how can I assimilate some of that? And how can I be better at, you know what I mean? And so I think it's a very conscious sort of construct about how do I, um, how do I communicate in a way that doesn't make people angry with me? <laughs> I think oh my gosh. And so, and so, and I think a lot of that comes out of being in the kitchen for so many years in such isolation. But, you know, I mean, to get back to your point about the writing, it's like that's one of the reasons I wrote so long with the book is that I wanted to see what it was. I'd written a lot of essays, and I wanted the practice. I wanted to see what is it like to write a long work and to keep people engaged. And one of the things I'm really proud of is I feel like it gains energy at the end. It gains more momentum. I like the way it ends. I feel like it didn't taper off. I kept a lot of, a lot of energy in the voice. I kept it loose, and, um, and it's kind of funny, and kind of it's got a lot going on. So I feel like if you like words then it, it's, it's not a bad book, you know? And, and so that was really, like, it's, it's the first thing that I've written that long. And so now I think, okay, well, now I'm going to take that, and, and the next thing I'm going to write is going to be no recipes. It's going to be, like, a literary book, so... That's going to be wonderful. Who's Hope your favorite so. author? Uh, a million of them. Um, I, uh, I'm very big on poetry, so we actually named um, Plum after William Carlos Williams' poem... So he's, he's one of my favorites. I mean, this is a guy who, you know, is a doctor and a father and, you know, kind of in the, in the middle of all of these other things he was doing, he basically found time to, to, to change American poetry and, and change the way people thought about language and to, and to also think about what is an American expression. And this is something I talk about in the book a lot and something we think about here. What is American food? And who are we as a culture? And how, now that we've assimilated, now we're in this nation of immigrants, we need to start forging our own national identity. And a national identity in a country this big is by nature complex. So I kind of go down, like, what are our core values? And so I start with, like, here at the restaurant, what are our core values? Integrity, um, uh, quality, um, kindness and generosity. Um, you know, and then you think about what what is American food at its best, 
In American food, at its best, whether I'm in the south or the northeast or 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 the the middle of the country, at its best, it's it's. Um, I think there's a, there's a generosity to it. Maybe too generous. Maybe our portions are too big. Maybe it's too amped up, and maybe it's it's too demonstrative. But it but there is something at its core that I think is really good, and so that's a lot about. You know, one of the things that we think about a lot is what does it mean to be an American? What does it mean to be an American now? And how can we work in a way in which our experience, how do we take our experience and universalize it? And that's what a book is anyway, right? You take very specific experience and universalize it in a way that anyone can look at it and say, uh, I see myself in it. I learned something from it. I'm afraid we're going to have to end the interview. I, I, this has just been extraordinary. I, I thank you so much for taking so much time, and thank you for, in your own words, telling us you know, your philosophy. Oh, well, thanks so much for having me. I it's been a I, pleasure. I hope sometime we can have another conversation. I would just love it. I very much look forward to okay. it. <laughs> thanks. Okay. And this is, uh, I'd like to do a shout-out to Robin Cohen and Jack Inslee, our producers of this program. And we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a non-profit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.